You are listening to the Mythical Jesus Podcast, taking the Christ of faith seriously. A podcast that dives into faith development, cognitive development, using Jesus as the framework for that. We dive deep into the Jesus of the New Testament, showing him as the preeminent example of development and what that development looks like. Buckle your seatbelts. Sit back, enjoy the ride. This is going to be a lot of fun because diving into the Jesus narrative has never been done like this before. You can visit our website at christoffaith.org. On the site, you will find tools, resources, documents to help you in your faith development and to better understand Jesus, the teacher, and his role in that. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Come thou Margaret Placentra Johnston, uh, welcome to the Mythical Jesus Podcast. How are you today? Good, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on. This should be an interesting discussion. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, For the listeners, uh, Margaret and I had a conversation uh, a few years ago, maybe two, three years ago at this point, where we talked about faith development from the inside of my uh, faith community. And Margaret is not a member of that faith community, but um, but as an outsider who's explored multiple religious journeys, uh, people who have gone through faith shifts, uh, and um, discuss kind of what that journey looks like, the falling apart and putting it back together. Uh, she's kind of an expert in this field. I don't even want to say kind of, you are an expert in this field. You've just talked to so many people. Uh, but I wonder, wonder if you could just start us off, maybe tell us a little bit about who you are. Tell us the, the previous book that uh, I interviewed you about, a little bit about that. And then we'll talk a little bit today about your new book, as well as kind of having a conversation about faith journeys altogether. Okay, Bill, sure. Thank you. So, um <laughs> Paradoxically, I am actually uh, by profession an eye doctor, but somehow this topic of um, faith development just grabbed me sometime in my early 30s, <laughs> and that was quite a long time ago. Um, and at first, when I first heard about the possibility of these stages where it's not just, you know, do you believe or don't believe, but there are actually stages people go through. When I first heard about it, I totally rejected that thought. I was like, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, just didn't make any sense to me that a person could reject belief in in religion and then still engage in some type of, um, spiritual connection, not related to a a particular religious institution. But over the years, um, I kept, this topic kept showing up for me in various ways. You know, I'd hear about a book and it'd be just like so compelling. I had to read this one and then I had to read that one. And by now, I've appropriated that concept to where it's it's so vibrant for me that I, I, I just want to share it with the world or who's ever willing to listen. Um, it's clear that a lot of people are not at a place where this type of information makes sense to them. But for those who are, I've spent uh, the last oh, 15 years um, trying to put this idea across. So... My first book came out actually in 2012, um, and that was called Faith Beyond Belief, Stories of Good People Who Left Their Church Behind. And um, as you know, in that book, I actually had interviewed people and I told stories of people who were going through two particular um, stage changes. Um, so the one would be from the typical religious um, 
believer stage, which I call the faithful, and I've read something you wrote that also had um, used that term, the faithful stage of people who just literally accept whatever their church um, tells them. And then there's like a questioning stage, which you have called the individualist stage, and I've called the rational stage, where people go questioning that. And then I told stories about people going from that faithful to rational stage in, the, in that first book I wrote. And um, then it, there, I also told stories of people who had gone through that individualist or questioning stage and sailed right on past it to something else, some type of more um, connected form of spiritual, uh, some spiritual connection um, in a in a different way. So, and, and that you have, and one thing I read that you wrote, you call that stage the strategist. I've called it the um, mystic stage um uh, so or the unitive stage so um anyway that's what the first book was about was telling stories of people going through those stages and then i compared and contrasted i think 12 theorists who have written about these stages and showed how the commonalities even though it sounds like they're talking about different things if you really look at the base information of what they're talking about they're they're describing the same stages so um, I, I thought that would help people understand or at least introduce some people to the concept of moving beyond that what's considered like not really that mature stage of just believing everything that you're told in your religion. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so, many, so many things <laughs> about these faith journeys are, are interesting. I'll tell you this, the discovering this process was life-saving to me. Because in my faith community, I thought what was happening was I had discovered that the story that my church told wasn't true. And so I thought what was happening, this waking up, this leaving black and white thinking, like I didn't understand that. All I knew was that my, my church had told me a story that I discovered wasn't holding up. I didn't understand this thing was a human thing. This was a human experience that was happening. And so because it was only happening to me inside my tribe, I thought it was unique. I thought I was alone. I I felt a lot of isolation. I felt a lot of shame. Uh, and when I catch on to that this is a human process that's taking place, all of a sudden, like, oh, other people have done this before, this is what it looks like. And as I started to read those stages, and you made a great point, by the way, which is, I think until someone starts to wake up to this, it's foreign to them. There's no way to even make sense of it. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with thinking you've arrived since you're so certain of your beliefs. You think you've arrived and the reality is you, you've only just begun and you can't even comprehend that. But when I learned this process, um, all of a sudden it took away the shame it took away the isolation. I could now seek out others, yourself included, who had gone through this. I wonder if you could speak for a moment uh, about how hard these shifts are, because there is some fracture. And, and most of the time when we first start on this track, uh, most of us call this a faith crisis, because that's exactly what it feels like. Could you speak for a moment maybe about your experience as you've spoken to a lot of people how much of a fracture this is for folks? Well, Bill, it's a tremendous problem um, because, in fact, the faith communities don't support 
people moving through these stages in most faith communities. I can't say all of them, but when this, I think it's happening more and more often as our culture is shifting that more and more people are exposed to things that shed doubt on the truths they've been told by their, their, their religious tribe. So more and more people are exposed to these questioning experiences through, you know, it's a huge topic, like global communications and the internet and, you know, all sorts of, we're not living in isolated communities where, you know, everyone believes the same thing anymore. So people are exposed, but as they are exposed and their tribe is telling them one thing, our truth is the only truth. And yet they live next door to a lovely Muslim person or, you know, who seems to be, you know, filled with the spirit and, you know, good person. And, and they don't understand <laughs> their tribe is telling them one thing and their experiences are telling them something else. And yet there's no, there's very little support for people going through this. So it is tragic in many cases and they feel lonely. Why does everyone believe a certain thing and, and I am having questions and it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. And so it, it has, you know, there are many examples, but it has been, it's very hard for people and they feel lonely and isolated and there's not support and, you know, and so I, that's why I wrote my, that first book. And I think that's kind of why you're doing the work you're doing is to try to help people um, past religious structures that aren't making as much sense in our world today as they did say in the fifties or, you know, for many, many, many decades before that, um, things are changing and we need a bigger story about what religion and spirituality are about. But yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious. I mean, when, when this fracture happens, when somebody wakes up, you know, and they, they realize like, Oh, Something doesn't add up here in my faith community. Um, what, what traditionally happens then is that the church turns back at them and says, uh-oh, you've done something wrong. You're, you're the one who's broken. You're the one who's less than. You're the one who's fallen. Um, and, and in some religions, which I was, which I was a member of, I, there's a, a number of them that I would label as high-demand fundamentalist religions. They go to the... I think nth degree to add a lot of shame and marginalization when these kinds of things happen. Um, are you are you beginning to see churches that handle this healthier? And and, and I want to preface it with simply saying that I've seen a church or two where they've even done classes on this developmental model. Um, but are you seeing churches uh, begin to move into a space where they allow people to shift over to mythical belief? Well, I think certain denominations are more attuned to that type of thought than others. And so, yes, in, in, it's not that I attend a great number of churches, but I always keep my ears open to other, you know, what thought processes different churches have. So um, some of the more uh, progressive Christian churches are, you know, not as literal and some of the, um, for example, I don't know if you want me to actually list particular denominations. Yeah, I would welcome it. I'd love okay. to hear. I'd love so to hear who. There's wow. the Unity Church, um, and they they're part of something called um, New Thought, and and they're very very much into you know all we're all are one, and all religions have truth, and you know it's just a matter of what tradition you're going to follow. It's not like you have to be a literal believer. So 
yeah, so there's unity churches. There's um, actually there's three types of churches that belong to the New Thought, and I, I can't remember the other two. Uh, one is religious science. There's unity church, religious science, and there's another one. And then uh, the, again, the, the progressive Christian churches. And and I actually I, I don't know that much about Judaism, but I have a feeling that there are. You know, there are different denominations in Judaism, not really denominations, but different tracts, and some of them are more conservative than others. But I do think that there is a, a level in Judaism that's not too literal, <laughs> that they, you know, don't hold to things in a literal way, and, and they might be more supportive of people moving. Well, the, people in those denominations, I think, don't have to move beyond the belief thing. I'm trying to explore this. Um, I've tried to ask a few Jewish people. It seems to me that perhaps Judaism is more is less about belief and more about observance. And so there isn't too much to reject there. <laughs> so um, because the, the beliefs are not as specific. So, yeah, I think there are churches moving beyond. And then we have the phenomenon of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and these are younger, typical millennial people who, you know, they know there's something about religion and spirituality that's of interest, but they don't belong to any particular church. So they're like spiritual, but not religious. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers of those increase dramatically every year. I get all these um, reports about, you know, statistical reports, how many people report as nuns and the numbers go up dramatically every year. So, um, yeah, so I think I, I think our culture in general is going through a shift towards some other type of religious uh, appreciations than what was typical when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, where, you know, the truth will be dispensed to you by the religious authority and you dare not question. I don't think that's going to work that well in, in coming decades. So I think our, our whole culture and I speak of Western culture and I can't speak to the Eastern side. Um, Western culture in general is just going through this shift where I think we're moving toward, moving away from these insular religious concepts towards something bigger. Yeah, and it seems like there is a significant difference between uh, Eastern and Western thought. Western thought maybe being a little more certain on specific beliefs that are kind of out there in the ether, whereas uh, it seems like Eastern is kind of a softer landing for some of this. And I've I've read studies from, and again, you mentioned earlier, there's tons of social scientists and others who are interested in this field who have laid out developmental models. And some of these models may seem like they're unconnected. And I'm thinking of scientists like William Perry or Kohlberg, uh, and then connecting it to kind of the faith development side with James Fowler, uh, and then maybe kind of a hybrid mix of the two with Ken Wilber being kind of the the at the forefront of that in, in today's here and now. Um, each of these systems seem to talk about the same process. And I'm I'm intrigued. I know that, you know, you put out your first book in 2012, uh, Faith Beyond Belief. Uh, and as I think about that time, uh, 2005 to maybe 2010, is really where the internet just fully comes on board, where you can access almost anything. I mean, I, I graduated high school in 1996, uh, and finding something on the internet was not like it is today. It's much more difficult. So I think about all the people who have shifted 
in the past before the information age, and I, my heart goes out to them. That had to have been extremely difficult. Do you, do you have this, some of these stories you collected seem like they were people telling you this transition from deeper into the past? Did you ever get a feel for how much more difficult this was on folks when they didn't have access to online communities and the online information? Oh, um, I I'd not thought of it that way, but I'm certain that that is true. Um, the struggle that the people described to me, and again, there's, there's stories in my first book, um, was, you know, tremendous. And one thing you find is they, they come up with that first item of cognitive dissonance, the first thing that about their religious truths that doesn't make sense to them. And you find them kind of rejecting that, like they just don't want to deal with it. And maybe they subconsciously, they start getting much more involved in their church because they're trying to fight that discrepancy. And then, you know, another discrepancy shows up and then they, you know, might distance themselves for a while and then they run back to the church and they, you know, get more involved, even, you know, doing all different activities and things. And, and then, you know, eventually the discrepancies went out and, and the person says, oh, wow, you know, I, I can't. But you're right. If they had had some access to, you know, people like, you know, on the Internet to all types of other things, um, other pieces of source of information, um, I think the transition would have been much easier for them. Uh, so, yeah, for sure. Um, one of the first things maybe it's not even one of the first things. One of the things that happens in this process is that when this fracture occurs, like you mentioned, when people experience cognitive dissonance and when they're, when something, I don't know if it's in their brain, if it's emotional um, strength to kind of push into the space, but at some point they give way for this cognitive dissonance to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, we hold two beliefs in our mind that contradict each other. Um, and, and now we're starting to explore that. One of the things that happens is we leave a black and white world. We used to see the world as either or us as them, cat people and dog people. Mm -hmm. And now, and, and there's right, there's our tribe and we're the good guys and we have God on our side. And then there's those guys. And you can see this, so deeply in the Old Testament, um, because you know whoever's talking, they've got God on their side, and and they're going into these battles against their enemies, and the enemies are the bad guys, and and in reality, these are just human beings fighting other human beings. At some point, we leave that black and white world. Could you talk for a moment about that process, maybe, of exiting dualistic or binary thinking, and then entering? a space where you no longer are held to that kind of, uh, that kind of dichotomy. Sure, Bill. That's one of actually my favorite um, topics is that it's not, it's not respected in our culture that we need a more sophisticated form of reasoning. So you are brought up in school where you fill out answers on tests. It's either right or it's wrong. Um, you are told by your religion that doing this is right and doing that is wrong. And, you know, the Ten Commandments are supposed to give all answers to all moral dilemmas in life. And as we know, you know, life just isn't that way. Things are not as cut and dried. I mean, um, the Ten Commandments don't address a tremendous number of social issues that are coming up now. Um, you know, uh, stem cell research and um gender, you know, people becoming transgender 
I mean, all these things are not addressed. And we have are filled with moral dilemmas in, in our world today. You know, even um, the uh, validity of wars. I mean, just all sorts of things. Moral dilemmas that are not subjectable to black and white reasoning. There's always arguments on either side. And we need to develop and we need to encourage in our children a more sophisticated form of reasoning. Now, that's hard to describe, um, but I think I like the work of um, a man named K. Helmut Reich, R-E-I-C-H. Um, he actually studied um, different levels of reasoning skills. In other words, people can have very immature types of reasoning skills, and that's that black and white thinking everything is um, either right or it's wrong. Through two Five different stages, which at the moment I'm hard-pressed to articulate all of them, but at the, at the top stage, you say, well, there's validity in all these arguments. They all have validity, and in fact, um, if you take a bird's-eye view of all this, there is an overarching argument that can explain this whole controversy. It may not provide an answer, but the point is that it, it's a, it's a person has to grow into being able to accept paradox and accept that some things are not going to line up exactly on the side of the right or the side of the wrong. And, and unless we encourage our young people to, you know, reason this way, the, the very complex civil, moral, and, you know, moral, civil and moral dilemmas that are coming up are not going to be solvable by black and white reasoning. We need to encourage paradoxical thought and, and teach people teach our young people to reason in more complex ways than what our society did in, like in my day where everything was either right or wrong. Yeah, and I, I want to follow that up with here in the Western world, it it seems like, again, and I know it's changing. I know the nuns are becoming a larger group. And as the nuns become larger, especially among the young people, at some point they're going to be parents and they're going to raise their kids to be a little more critical thinking in this way. Um but there's this idea that in our Western world, we're growing up in a religious culture, even in the midst of there being all these different religions, where every religion kind of claims like it has its piece of the pie, and it's the, it's the true and best tasting piece of the pie. And so it's conveying to its membership, and I'm speaking in generalities, it's conveying to its membership that there's a certainty here, and it teaches... Um, it frames the world in a binary way. And so in the Western world, it seems like uh, the average age that people kind of encounter this shift if they wake up to it is between the ages of like 30 and 50. Um, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on like what age, if we had a really healthy space to encourage this, I mean, is this a, is this a space that teenagers could easily move into if they had the support system around them um, to start thinking this way? Yes. Let's, for the moment, separate religious belief from reasoning skills. <laughs> and and I think you could teach reasoning skills to children as they're growing up. You know, there are many, I, I can't think of an example right now, but you, you could easily draw up some social examples at home. Um, you know, that from, from their person's family that, that might say, well, suppose someone had a, a parent that was not of the same religion. Okay, just for an example. I remember being a child in the Catholic school in the 50s 
and being told, if you have a parent who's not a, a Catholic, you are not supposed to speak to them. Now, of all ridiculous, <laughs> you know, it's laughable now, but they were telling children this in the 50s. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's horrible to even think of that. But these are the type of things that you, you could design a bunch of, um, for children, you, you could design a bunch of dilemmas like this and say, okay, well, what should we do in this situation? What, you know, let's think this through in a logical way. And can, is there another way of looking at this picture? Yes, you can teach. I think you could teach children, you know, a more um, expanded reasoning style, but you don't particularly want to interfere. You know, let's say in the school system, you don't particularly want to interfere with what their religion is teaching them. You know, that's a different story. But the point would be one would flow from the other at some point in time. When I can't say, but at some point in time, I think that these children who have been taught to think paradoxically would, um, you know, apply that to their religious beliefs and, and possibly move on beyond that literal faithful level. Yeah, it seems like kids could handle this. Um, and, I, and I know plenty of young teenagers, 13, 14, 15 year olds who went through this at that age where they... <clears throat> and I can only imagine the social pressure on them from their parents and their faith community, but they deconstructed their religions as young teenagers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems like if if we could figure out a healthy way to say like, okay, at this really, really young age, these these children are really only able to handle a binary world, but between the ages of, say, 13 and 15, and, and I'm sure it can even be done younger than that, but between 13 and 15, we could easily transition kids into being critical thinkers and reasoning uh, and and helping them to kind of see their world in a new way. It seems like that would be, um, it seems like that's feasible. I think it's not only feasible, it's necessary. The world is getting more and more complex <laughs> because we're forced to deal with factors from all over the world instead of just our little community. And so unless our young people are taught to deal with these effectively, our society will collapse, basically. Um, we've got a, a member of my uh, faith community. His name's Thomas McConkie, and, and he's huge on uh, this developmental process as well. And you had mentioned earlier uh, something about you know human development and kind of all of us collectively – He's mentioned before that there's this idea that humans, even on the whole, we've been slowly moving through these stages collectively. In other words, if you go back in time, uh, whatever it is, a million years ago, and whatever human beings look like then, they were operating out of these lower base stages. And at some point, that tribalistic, that ethnocentric perspective is what humans moved into and, and it may have even saved humanity at that time to be able to align yourself with other families and groups uh, and to see us as them might have even been a, a progressive movement. And it makes me wonder if today, and I sense this when we talk about the nuns, I sense that we are collectively as human beings moving into um, or, or at least closer to the individualist stage as as just humans collectively, does does that seem to be what you're picking up on as well? Are we are we breaking new ground? Are we in? The, you said we're in the middle of a shift right now. Do you think that we're we're as human beings moving into a new space uh, generally? 
Absolutely, Bill. Um, in fact, that brings up that's the very topic of my second book, which just came out uh, two months ago. Um, it's called Overcoming Spiritual Myopia, um, A View Toward Peace Among the Religions. So in that book, I perhaps less eloquently than some others, because I'm trying to do summary, I, I, I work in large picture and I only touch things in detail. No, I do not touch on things in detail, but I do discuss that in the book, that very pro projection where I think that um, civilizations do progress and actually they are moving towards a more open-ended um, type of spiritual connection and you know, realizations and, and all that. Um, it's an immensely complex topic. And of course there are movements forward and movements back, backward. And so you, there's never, you know, smooth transition moving forward. But I do feel <clears throat> that our civilization, Western civilization, is moving away from that insular uh, type of belief system towards something, a larger story, a bigger story, a bigger picture. Um, and it's, um, again, it's immensely complex. <clears throat> but I try to outline in my second book factors that are compelling us forward. So, I mean, the Internet is one thing. Um, the study of cosmology, another one. I mean, growing up in the 50s, we thought we were only vaguely aware of, you know, galaxies. We just knew about the Earth and our solar system. And now it turns out there are, I think the last thing I read was 2 billion, 2 trillion, 2 trillion galaxies. So our universe is not only expanding, but our information about the universe is expanding. And these little Bible stories about, you know, the earth was created in seven days. And, you know, I mean, they begin to sound ridiculous when you realize that the story is, is exponentially bigger than anything that those people who wrote the Bible, inspired or not, the people who wrote the Bible could not have possibly had a full appreciation of what the universe is about, nor do we now, but we have a better appreciation now than we did then. So these many, many factors are moving our um, our civilization away from that insular, you know, tight wound type of religion and towards a bigger appreciation, uh, you know, spiritual or not, but bigger, bigger appreciations of what everything's about. Yeah, it seems like, as you pointed out, the universe is getting bigger and bigger, our world. Um, it is now, because of social media, it's now possible for me to have conversations with people on the complete opposite side of the of the globe um, and to talk with people and to get to know them to to be around and and to um, uh, intermix with with people who are come from very different backgrounds religions ethnicities uh, sexual orientations so not only does the world get bigger and bigger and bigger so for instance when you said cosmology my initial thought in my head was like, what does that have to do with it? But you're right. The moment you start to say like the world gets bigger and I get smaller, I start to realize I'm not the center of the universe anymore. Um, the universe is huge. And, and I can only imagine again, I'm, I'm speaking, this is going to sound maybe like I'm speaking in, in crazy terms, but I'm throwing it out as an idea. If for instance, aliens from a, you know, far, far, far away at some point have contact with us and they say, look, we've had a completely different trajectory in terms of our evolution, in terms of the gods we worship, um, in terms of the stories we told. 
All those kinds of things, whenever we encounter somebody who's different, who's raised with a different story, it causes us to challenge our own story and to realize our story is only one story among a million or a billion or a trillion other stories. It seems to encourage the shift the more diversity we're in touch with. Um, one of the other things that seems to happen, Margaret, and we're talking today with Margaret Placentra Johnston, uh, author of Overcoming Spiritual Myopia, A View Toward Peace Among the Religions. And I really want to hit this book hard when we get to the end, when we talk about those who figure out a way to stay in a spiritual system once they recognize its myth. Um, but there's this idea that when we go through these transitions, we grow up resting our authority on the leaders of our tribe, these outer authorities. We know that they know the truth. We know they know the truth better than the authorities outside our tribe. We, we know they know the truth better than we do ourselves. And so we place this really blind trust in them. And as this process happens, we begin to shift that um, and we begin to listen not only to other voices outside our tribe, but also voices inside ourselves better. Could you maybe talk about that process of changing the locus of our authority in this journey? Yes, um, of course. It's um, another huge issue in the topic that you and I choose to explore is where is your authority located? So um, it's... It, it's inherent incumbent upon institutions to try to maintain your interest in their authority over you <laughs> because otherwise the institutions cannot continue to exist. I know that well. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, you know, they have buildings to maintain, they have staff to pay, you know, whatever it is. And, and so it's in their own interest to keep you dependent on their authority. So I, I think we can't be too hard upon, uh, on these people who are trying to limit our appreciation of moving forward. But really, you know, as long as you're dependent on an outer authority, you are a spiritual child. And so you can't really become fully adult until you break free of that outer authority. You know, I think most adolescents, health, most healthy adolescents go through this with their parents. At some point, they just have to say, no, I'm who I am. And whatever my parents are telling me to be, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to displease them and I'm going to be who I am. So in the same sense, we need to break free of, free of our religious authorities and say, no, my truth is from within. It's something I know. I know it's, it's real for me and, and my, my appreciations are, have authority and they're authentic and, and I don't have to be dependent on an outer authority. However, um, to touch on that other, the next step that you mentioned earlier about the moving on towards that non-literal level or what you call the strategist or I call the uh, unitive level. Um, at that point, I feel that people begin to, um, it's not just their own inner authority from their brain, you know, but there's something in their heart that connects to something larger and they actually can get valid information from something in the universe. You might want to call it God. You might not want to call it God, but there's something, sometimes they just know things that there's no particular um, outer information that they could come to know it. You know, they just kind of know it in their heart. And and so that, again, is a different type of authority. And, and in my books, I've called it a spirit authority. So you, there's, you know, there's outer authority, there's inner authority that comes from your heart and your I mean, comes from your head. And then there's that 
spirit authority that comes from your heart or from from the universe or the ether or whatever you want to call it. Um, you mentioned being a spiritual child. <clears throat> I think that's interesting uh, because you're right. When as long as we're trusting some other voice to dictate right and wrong and not at all be able to kind of go inside ourselves and say like, what do I think about that? What do I feel about that? This, this complete trust in an authority outside of ourselves, but within our tribe, I think spiritual child is a really good label. And I'm thinking about it because at some point as children, we grow up to the point where we have to leave the home. We have to go out on our own. We have to make our own way and live our own life. Um, but at some point, sometimes we have to go back too, because our parents need us to take care of them. Um, and I, and I see this and I want to explore this because I, I want to tie this to your book. Um, there's this idea for that, for a chunk of people who go through this process, they're able to invest themselves back into their spiritual system, their religious system. They don't do it with literal belief. They're now, they now understand what myth is and, um, but they, but they also see the value in myth and they're willing to go back into the system in spite of the system still imposing itself as literal. And I wonder if maybe you could speak for a moment, cause this is a section I don't understand. <clears throat> I, I value spirituality. I value myth deeply but I see my spiritual system that I came from, my religious system that I came from as being very toxic to those who don't fit the mold, very hurtful and causing a ton of damage uh, in its path. And, and so as much as I look at it from a distance and say, thank you for what you gave me at a younger time, I'm not at a place where I could in a healthy way go back in and sit with that. And I'm curious what you find as you talk to people who do re-engage their system, how they're dealing with that paradox. And I know they handle paradoxes way better later on in this development, but right. maybe your thoughts on, on what's going on there and how they're perceiving that going back in. Yes, that certainly is an interesting uh, topic. Um, I, I might start by saying it has more to do with, it starts, it has a lot to do with the individualist approach to that middle stage versus the next stage where the person is more communal than individualist. So the individualist can exist outside of a tribe and they're just fine. You know, it's, it's, you know, I have my truth and you know, the heck with everyone else. Um, but as they move to the next stage, they want community. And, and I think that at that stage, the need for some form of community overwhelms their individualist tendencies and they say, okay, you know, so half the people <laughs> believe silly things, but I just want to, I want to be part of this community. You know, I will, I can experience my own spirituality um, more fully in community than I can alone. So that's one thing, but the other, there might be something to do with the nature of different religious communities, some being more accepting of outliers than others. So it may be that certain communities are, are too hard to return to, but that doesn't mean you couldn't, a person in this, in between the, uh, the individualist stage and the next one, it doesn't mean the person couldn't uh, find 
and more open-minded community or more open-hearted community. So where I live uh, here in southern Utah, there's, there's the, the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons. And, and that's the faith community I come from, and that's, that's been really difficult to kind of go through this shift within that faith. And, and as I've looked around, uh, as, as I explored other faith communities here in this area, there, a lot of them still are deeply based in certainty. So they'll say, okay, great, you left the Mormons, now come over here where we take the Bible completely literally. And, and that's not a safe space either for someone like me. And there seem to be so few churches that um, seem to have a safe space for non-literal belief, but still offering spirituality and using myth to teach a deeper truth, even if the myth isn't true itself. Um, and, it, and it feels like I had a conversation. I don't know if you know who uh, John Shelby Spong is. Of course, yes. Okay. I had a conversation with him a couple of months ago uh, in an interview and he admits, like, the the more liberal churches, they're not generally having a lot of success. There's a few of them that are, but they're not generally having success. People seem like once they go through this transition, they're not going to overly commit themselves like they did in those younger stages to these systems. Um, what are your thoughts on whether these kinds of spiritual systems can start to have success, whether there's enough people out there who want this for it to grow? Uh, or, or are we just destined to say, like, everybody who gets to this point is going to be a little wishy-washy and not overly commit themselves, and so these things are always going to struggle? Yeah, that's a huge question, and I, I don't have enough information uh, about what's happening with the mainline, you know, or, or progressive Protestant churches and why they're membership is declining so dramatically it must be that they're just not offering maybe they're not offering enough certainty and and the the populace is still not ready to uh, belong to institutions that don't offer certainty I'm I'm really not sure about that, I'm not clear Um, but it could be that what we need is for our institutions to transform um Again, because I think they're not, they must not be offering what the people need. And I really don't have a good, I'm sorry about the fuzzy answer. I, I just don't have a good feeling about why, what this is about. Yeah, me either. That's, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I think all of us who go through this shift, we're open, we're open to some level of spirituality. We're open to listening to wisdom. We're welcoming insight and learning um, and so if a system could could offer community and also offer wisdom uh, without imposing any kind of specific faith-based religious rules or theology, in my mind, I think that kind of thing would succeed, but it doesn't seem like, it seems like very few are. I, I know like uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber and, and her faith community up in Colorado is doing well. I know there's another faith community up there called The Refuge that's doing good. There's a a church in Arizona called One Church where their motto is uh, doubts and questions are welcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, They seem to be doing really good. But it seems like generally these progressive churches are deeply struggling. And and, uh, Jack Spong 
made the comment like, you know, that's what's going to happen. And if we base our success on growth, then maybe that never, that never occurs, but no church is going to start up with the, with the basis of losing money. That's just not going to happen. Um, if they know that's going to occur. And so I'm just curious if you think, you know, do you think maybe there's just not enough people out there yet? You seem to have hinted at that kind of in your answer that maybe we're just not far enough along where there's enough people who want this. Yeah, that's such a tough question, and I I have to almost defer on answering that. I just, you know, the the idea of supporting institutions, you know, financially and structurally with a hierarchy of authority, um, I just feel that that's um, slowly and painfully passing out of our 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 culture, um, and so how you build that into a faith community that would be successful going forward. I I just don't have, (laughs) I don't have a good answer for that. I'm sorry. That's okay. I feel like, I feel like maybe a handful of us should get together (laughs) and lay out what that could look like that could be Mm -hmm. successful. And, but then, but then we're just starting one more church, I guess. Yes. Right. Heaven knows we don't (laughs) want to do that. Right. (laughs) Um, I want to, I want to finish up talking for a moment about, uh, belonging versus authenticity. Uh, and I think this will be kind of a, a good note to end on. And then I want to, I want to give one last question, which is to talk a little bit about your own personal journey, but it seems like when we are in ethnocentricity, belonging is so important. We want to look like, talk like, walk like those in our tribe. We, um, there's this term called costly signaling, where we want to show people in our tribe that we've paid the price, we've gotten the benefit, we want to, you know, essentially stand up and raise a hand and say, like, I kept these commandments and I received <laughs> these blessings. We're always trying to signal to our other tribal members that that we look like you and we fit in perfectly. And as we begin to go through this transition, a tension kind of rises up within us, which is that we we realize like that's not giving us the benefit we thought it was, and we we want to start being authentic. But that authenticity again runs counter to what the system is asking you to do. Religious systems, as you and I both know, survive really well at ethnocentric level, and once they move beyond that, they start to lose control of the masses, and they don't want that. So. So there's lots of mechanisms in place within religion that uh, kind of hold us down uh, to that ethnocentric level. At some point, I wanted to be authentic, and it didn't matter if I belonged or not anymore. Um, and, and that journey itself took years of ebb and flow. And as you pointed out earlier, one step forward and then two steps back and then three steps forward and one step back. It's such a such a uh, experience full of emotional turmoil and tension as I try to fit in my tribe, but also try to be myself. Can you speak for a moment about some of the the stories and the people you've talked to, the, the general consensus you get about that part of the journey of taking back your authenticity? Sure. Um, I'm going to take this in a direction that may not be what you intended but I feel this is what comes up prominently for me. And there's a difference between conformity and community. So in conformity, in the, in the type of milieu that you're describing, people rejoice in their conformity. So I, we all belong, you know, we all believe the same things. We all do the same, whatever things we do. So that's, you know, 
conformity is perhaps a superficial form of belonging. Whereas in a community where people have transcended the need for conformity, they can rejoice in their differences. And so it doesn't matter if we are all of different sexual preferences or if we're all of different races or even different beliefs and different practices. The point is we're all one human community. And, and if you see yourself as belonging to that larger community, uh, of course, the really spiritual people would say it's not just the human community, it's the animals and the uh, you know trees and all that. But if you see yourself as belonging to all that, then you don't require conformity. In fact, you treasure the diversity of all that. So I think you can be authentic to yourself in, in a, in a type of, if, should there be such an idealistic type of community where, where diversity is truly celebrated. Um, you know, then I think you can be authentic to yourself and belong in such a, that type of community where it's about belonging through diversity rather than through conformity. Yeah, and, and I think that some of us are managing that better than others only because maybe there's more people in our uh, in our in our environment who are on the same path. So, for instance, again, here in Southern Utah, where Mormonism is such a prevalent thing, half the population is you know members of this faith, and so it, it has great influence on legislature, even on police departments and. Uh, judges and and it reaches all of those things out here. As I've deconstructed that faith, so have lots of others. And finding a community of people, and in my friend group, in my group, we get together essentially every weekend and we're hanging out. It is a new tribe. We have uh, lesbian couples in our group. We have gay uh, men couples in our group. We've got um, people who believe very deeply that the trees have energy and spirit. Uh, we have others who are complete atheists. Uh, we have others who uh, still are looking for a religious system, even as they've stepped away from their, their, their one of their childhood. And those differences are celebrated and respected and loved, and we love what the what the different person adds to our tribe in terms of their diversity. That's a very different thing than the religious systems that seem to impose like we need you to believe these specified things and we need you to behave in these specified ways. How difficult is it for people to find that new community? Um, are you finding that most of the folks you talk to they're also finding groups of large groups of friends to be around, or is it? Are you just lucky if you can find one or two people who have been through this? So I think both of those are true. You're lucky if you have one or two or five that actually, literally, you know, uh, cotton to all of your concepts. But in a loose sense, I think a lot of us, a lot of people, are finding looser communities where you know. Um, all right, a trivial example like Meetup. You know, through Meetup, you can. Do you have Meetup out there? I'm sure you do. Um, you, you, okay. So, I mean, you might have somebody that's some spiritual thing, and and you go to it, and okay, it's lovely, and then three weeks, you know, three months later, it falls apart, and it's not meeting anymore. <laughs> so, you know, there are lots of people who are loosely trying to find these types of community, but um, whether they have, they don't have the structure <laughs> that your churches do. And so they don't tend to hold up that long and they don't seem to have 
you know, the members are in flux. Somebody might come for a few months and then stop coming, you know, or the leader might say, oh, this is too much trouble. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we do have these things forming and deforming and, you know, coming and going. It's just not, it just doesn't lead you to the same sense of connection that our churches, because of their institutional structure, could offer. Yeah, it, it seems, again, once you step back and take the the 20,000-foot view, you begin to sense the great role that religion played in the evolution of human beings in providing a structure where people could just show up and your friends and family are there. Like, everybody's ready to rock and roll. Um, and it does seem like it's something we're going to have to kind of figure out. How do we, how do we have... Uh, enough structure to bind us together as human beings, as a tribe, whether it's even as all of humanity, or you say maybe even bigger, like like animals and plants and those kinds of things. But um, on some level, those things to survive have to have structure and boundaries and rules. And, and then we get back into the very things we just took apart and don't want to be part of anymore. Um, it's going to be interesting. Of course, you and I won't be around for to see it. <laughs> But to watch the next, uh, you know, 100,000 years unfold, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be interesting to see what's at the end of that. I'm curious. I want to I wrap up just with kind of a personal question to you on your journey. Again, we're, we're speaking with Margaret Placentra Johnston, uh, author of Overcoming Spiritual Myopia, A View Toward Peace Among the Religions. And, and I think we are heading that way. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve some more violence and some more... Um, us versus them to get there because people don't let go of this ground easily. Uh, but we are moving that way. And so I, I appreciate you kind of helping us understand that journey. Um, you personally, Margaret, I know you've, in my last conversation with you, you shared with me that you're really, you're really more of an observer of this process. Like you've, you've experienced it yourself, certainly. But while you're speaking to people who have entered these later stages and gone back into some type of spirituality. Um, my impression of our previous conversation was that you um, had kind of hung back and were more of an observer of that process rather than living that out yourself. And I'm just curious, I want to give you some space to maybe tell us how this, how these later stages of development have worked within your own life in terms of how you see religion and what kind of communities you've chosen to invest yourself back into. So what I've really appreciated in in the interviews I've done speaking with people is those who have found their way towards this open-ended type of faith or what uh, we might, you're calling the strategist or I'm calling the unitive stage or the mystic stage. They found their way on their own without the studies and without reading about it. Somehow some experience brought them to their knees and, and just, you know, told them there's something bigger out there. So I may have had small examples of that, not to not to dismiss my appreciation for the small examples I've had, but s- some people have had just life-changing spiritual experiences. Um, and, and I really, I think that their road towards this, this might be my own, <laughs> my own, uh, insecurity, but I think that their road towards this unitive stage is more authentic than those like myself who got there through studying a whole lot and talking to a whole lot of people. And, and I understand 
this unit of stage and I appreciate it and I do feel that we all are one, all people are connected, you know, the animals somewhat included, etc. Um, but I don't feel the need to, I mean, I'm, I haven't found a community that works, you know, a, a structured community that works for me, for where I'm at. So um, for a long time, I belonged to a humanist community and I brought my children up in in going to that Sunday school or that humanist community. And, and they're wonderful and, you know, but I, I don't feel as connected there as I used to. And so right now I'm kind of, and, and, of course, this involves the fact that my husband's not, you know, it depends on his level of interest, too, because I don't want to join a community that he wouldn't participate in. So it's a tough situation. It's like I'm fine the way things are, but I don't have an actual spiritual community. Nonetheless, I remain dramatically interested in this topic, and I am so devoted towards trying to help our culture move forward towards this you know i i don't think in my lifetime i'll see like you just said i don't think i'll see an actual thing an actual example where this comes to fruition where we have this unitive um oh gosh where we have this unitive culture but um if i can do anything to change you know a few hearts to move a few hearts forward that's kind of my mission um so I don't, I mean, I'm kind of fine where I'm at now, but um, as far as, yeah, so <laughs> as far as being you know, brought to my knees by some religious experience, no, I have not had that. So, so you're still open, I mean, you're still looking for spirituality. It's just no, nothing's met, nothing's met that yet. Nothing, nothing's come, um, come into view that's filled that role, if that makes sense. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm looking for spirituality and I wouldn't say I haven't found it. I have not chosen to participate in a particular community that matches or approaches my own spiritual understanding. Right. It's not, nothing's met that need yet. Right. But I'm, I'm fine doing it on my own and I do have, a sort of spiritual practice, which I think I mentioned to you in an email about the Reiki, which has brought me tremendous satisfaction in the people I've been able to help just by sending them Reiki um, and, and by, you know, just understanding the concepts that Reiki brings you towards, but it's not a spiritual community and it's, um, you know, it's, it's not like a, a, a set group. (laughs) <laughs> that you can belong to. So, yeah, I mean, it, it goes lacking, and I think that might not be too unusual in our culture that many people have left behind the religious institution and they're kind of, you know, they're moving in one, in a more spiritually mature direction, but they don't have a community which can validate that for them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I want to I close, I mean, I want to close asking you first, where can people pick up the new book from you? And and just as well, where can people pick up your previous book, which I, again, thought uh, your writing is beautiful. And I just want to say this to the listener. Um, what I have deeply appreciated about your book, and your book is one of the top four or five books on my bookshelf, 
what I've appreciated about your book, Faith Beyond Belief, was that you approached it in a sense as an observer. Like you didn't tell your story. You allowed all of these other people in various religious walks to tell their story. And it came, it came across the right way. It was the right thing I needed at the time where I was still trying to figure out if my religion was true, but I also understood that something was wrong. It was deeply helpful to have this, what, what appeared, and I think truly, an objective look at the process without a bias of like, hey, here's my religious walk and here's how my walk fell apart. I, I might have not listened to that. Um, your objectivity uh, was touching to me and it was at a moment where that's what I needed was just an observer sharing human stories. Um, so for listeners out there, I can't recommend highly enough Faith Beyond Belief, uh, but tell us where people can get that, the, the previous book, Faith Beyond Belief, as well as your new one. Well, Bill, thank you so much for what you just said. Um, that makes all the hours and years I spent writing that book worthwhile. But um, both books are available, you know, on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Um, and you can also, any bookstore can order them, although I don't think any bookstore will have them on the shelf right now. It's available, both books are available in both um, e-format and paper. Perfect. And Barnes and Noble and Amazon, obviously most people have a Barnes and Noble in their town. And, and for those who don't, uh, Amazon obviously has just about everything. So you can get it there. Again, I can't recommend your work enough. Uh, for those of you listening who are just beginning to kind of wake up to uh, these uh, shifts in how you reason, how you think of your religious community, um, Margaret Placentra Johnston's books are, are things you've got to have on your shelf uh, because they're helpful to you understanding you're not alone and that this is the human journey. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's uh, It's been just a beautiful thing to have a conversation with you. Well, thank you, Bill. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I commend you on the work you're trying to do. Perfect. Thank you so much. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing